I did uh, alert slash warn you. Uh, our next speaker, uh, Roger Pilon, is a very important figure in the development of American constitutional jurisprudence, or as he likes to put it, uh, rather than constitutional law or theory, we should be talking about the Constitution. And he has played a very important role in focusing discussion back on the Constitution. Uh, in his work with the Federalist Society and at the Cato Institute for so many years, uh, bringing out publication after publication after publication, overseeing so many briefs filed before the Supreme Court that have had a remarkable impact on the court. Uh, he is currently Vice President for Legal Affairs and the B. Kenneth Simon Chair in Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. He's a very fine colleague, despite having a PhD in philosophy from the University of Chicago mm -hmm. and a law degree from George Washington University Law School. Roger. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tom. And it's good to be back at Cato U. This is my second year, if I'm not mistaken. And in both occasions, Tom has asked me to talk about the Constitution and the rule of law. Um, I'm going to talk about the Constitution and constitutional law, but I'll just say, uh, pay my respects to Tom's title by saying that the rule of law is, of course, what you have a Constitution to secure, and it stands as opposed to the rule of man. And if you're fortunate, you have a Constitution that, on the one hand, does secure law in the classical natural rights tradition, and on the other hand, establishes the institutions that will secure that law. There are different ways that those institutions can be organized, of course. We can have a presidential system, as we do. We can have a parliamentary system, as most countries do. But the key to understanding how you establish the rule of law is, first of all, to get the law right and then second, to get the institutions that will secure that law. We in this country have been very fortunate in that our founders got it right, for the most part, right from the beginning. And that is in contrast to the founders of many other countries, the Soviet Union, uh, Cuba today, North Korea, and so on and so forth. And so what I'm going to do in this talk is set forth, first of all, the moral world that stands behind the Constitution, which, when encoded in law, is the law that, ideally, every free society should have. And then, secondly, go through the institutions that are meant to secure that law. And then, thirdly, show what has happened to that over the two and more centuries since the Constitution was established that has given us what we call modern constitutional law, not to be confused with the Constitution itself. The key to that is to understand the ideas of the Progressive Era, which were instituted by the New Deal Court, especially in 1937 and 38, which have given us modern constitutional law. And I will conclude with the three schools of thought that have emerged with respect to the role of the court in securing the law or modern constitutional law, as the case may be. The liberal approach to the Constitution and the role of the courts under it, 
the conservative reaction that took place to that during the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then the third school that emerged in contrast to the two of them, the classical liberal school, which we stand for here at the Cato Institute, and which I established the Center for Constitutional Studies in order to try to secure, knowing full well that it was not the job for a day. We have been at it for 25 years. We have had relative success given that short period of time with so gargantuan a task. In the last term, as many of you may have seen, we filed 18 amicus briefs with the Supreme Court, and we were victorious in 15 of those. There are already articles that are appearing about how the Supreme Court is becoming increasingly libertarian, were it so. It is more so than it was 25 years ago, but the job is barely beginning. There is so much more to do. All right, let me begin where I said I was going to begin, with the moral order that stands behind the Constitution. And to understand that, you have to look first at the Declaration of Independence, where the founders, 11 years earlier, set forth their philosophy of government. And in doing so, the first thing to notice is that there are two parts of those seminal phrases in the Declaration that begin, we hold these truths to be self-evident. The first part sets forth the moral order. The second part sets forth the political and legal order that flows from that moral order. In other words, Jefferson was standing in the, in the state of nature tradition, the tradition that sets forth the moral principles first and then derives from them the political and legal principles. And the importance of appreciating that is in appreciating the theory of legitimacy that stands behind the Constitution. If you're going to show, which was the project of the classical liberals, how a legitimate government might arise with legitimate powers, you don't want to start in your theorizing with the state of affairs with government, because that begs the question, it gives you a circular argument. What you want to do is start with the state of affairs without government and ask what are our rights and correlative obligations vis-a-vis -vis each other in that state of affairs such that we will know what rights and obligations we have when it comes time to create a government and empower it. And so that is the strategy behind the Declaration and the Constitution aimed at establishing the principles of legitimacy such that you will know whether what the government is doing is or is not legitimate. And I'm going to go through that in some detail, but what I want to do first is point to the fundamental issue in those first parts of the Declaration, namely that Jefferson placed us in the natural law tradition, the tradition that holds that there's a higher law of right and wrong from which to derive the positive law at any given point in time and against which to criticize it. That idea of there being a natural law has its roots in antiquity. When you look at a dialogue like the Euthyphro, written by Plato, you see a debate between old Socrates and young Euthyphro over the meaning of piety, because they are before the king's court. Euthyphro, to bring a charge of impiety against his father for having bound and thrown into a ditch one of his servants, 
who had committed a murder, after which he went to Athens to ask the exegete what he should do next, during which time the servant died. So Euthyphro is bringing a charge of impiety against his father. Socrates, by contrast, is being charged with impiety by Miletus, the prosecutor, for having corrupted the morals of the Athenian youth. And Socrates really doesn't understand the charge against him. So he asks young Euthyphro, who of being young and quite full of himself, is quite sure he knows what piety is, to explain to him what it is. And so what we find in the dialogue is that uh, Euthyphro gives one definition after another of piety and impiety, each of which is found wanting by the withering critique of Socrates, at the end of which we get to the final question. Is piety pious because the gods love it or the gods love it because it is pious? And so you have a contrast there between legal positivism, a will theory of legitimacy, and natural law rooted in reason. Is piety pious because the gods love it? I mean, that's the, the only reason that makes piety pious. Or do they love it because it is pious, because there are independent reasons that make piety pious, and that's why the gods love it. This idea that there are reasons beyond the, real, the, the mere law that justify it is what is at the foundation of natural law theory. And so you've got to come to grips with what those reasons are. And we see the effort over the next two millennia to do that. In Aristotle, we see the Nicomachean ethics and the uh, Eudaimonian ethics in which he sets forth uh, the theory of virtues and, virtues and vices and the golden mean. We see in the Stoics, after the demise of the Greek city-states, that they turn to notions of universality the idea of the law that is common to all men at all times and all place and all places. And then when you look at the Romans, you see them developing this with respect to Roman law rooted in property and contract, which we will see throughout the Middle Ages. In Cicero, we find the invocation of a savings clause, which holds that if a law coming out of the Senate uh, is contrary to right reason, it is null and void ab initio. Well, you can do that only if you've got some notion of what it is that is right reason that this law might be contrary to. So you have there the implicit notion of a higher law. In Seneca, we see a rudimentary notion of a state of nature nature. When we turn to the continent, we see in the struggle between pope and king and the emergence of uh, elementary notions of separations of powers in separate jurisdictions. But it's when we turn to England that we see the institutions that are necessary to secure these ideas of a higher law, and in particular, the institution of the common law, which was made by judges as ca cases or controversies were brought before them over some 500 years during which they developed the theory of rights that our own framers would draw upon. They were deciding, as I said, cases that were brought by ordinary individuals against their neighbor and later on against the king. And in doing so, they were, uh, uh, they were appealing to custom and to reason and rooting their, uh, their uh, theory of rights in, again, our two fundamentals, property and contract. Edward Corwin, in his little book, The Higher Law Background of American Constitutional Law, said that the common law from the 14th century onward was thought to be higher law because rooted in right reason. 
Then we finally get to Locke and we see all of this drawn together in the second treatise. He sets forth the theory of rights, again, rooted in reason. This is not a theory that is rooted in some of the classical theocratic considerations that we think of sometimes with natural law. Rather, it's rooted in reason, which of course is common to all men at all times and all places. Locke also sets forth the theory of property and finally the social contract theory. And it's all of this that Jefferson draws upon in the Declaration. When you see that he starts, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident truths are rooted in reason. What are they? You start with the premise of equality, and in doing so, you invoke a rule of parsimony, something like Occam's razor, a minimal premise. If someone wants to argue a more ample premise, such that he has rights superior to those of someone else, then the burden rests upon him to do so, failing which it, you resort to the more simple premise, namely that we all have equal rights. And Jefferson goes on to, def to uh, define uh, these rights with reference to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And in this notion of the pursuit of happiness, you find a crucial insight into the mind of the classical liberal. What makes you happy is not necessarily what makes me happy. We each have our different utility schedules, as economists might say, as we work our way through life, our different values. Nevertheless, you have a right to pursue whatever values you wish, even so doing so may offend your neighbor, provided only that you respect the equal rights of your neighbor to do the same by not taking what belongs free and clear to him. And so what you've got in this notion of a distinction between rights and values is a way to thread your way between two alternatives we inherited from antiquity, namely skepticism and dogmatism, two approaches to epistemology, whereby the skeptics say that there are no moral truths or if there are, we can't know them. The dogmatists, by contrast, say that there are moral truths relating to every aspect of the human condition, relating to what you can put in your bodies, to what sexual practices you can engage in, to the role of women in society, and so on and so forth. Think of some of the draconian codes in places around the world today. Neither of these two alternatives is attractive. Skepticism gives you no morality, nothing to get hold of. Dogmatism gives you no liberty. So if you can find a way between these two unattractive alternatives, you will have morality with respect to the theory of rights, objective rights, and you will have liberty with respect to the pursuit of happiness pursuant to those rights, such that the picture that emerges is one in which each of us free, is free to pursue happiness by his own lights, provided he respects the rights of others to do the same. But of course, you need much more than this if you're going to fully flesh out the theory of rights. You need, for example, to go beyond property and contract. You need to have a, a, a refinement of what uh, property you do have and do not have. And it turns out that when you do that, you can find a number of examples that look difficult at first, but once you press them, you see they aren't so difficult, and then you will find that there are difficult cases. To take some of the former, let's say that I have a lovely view of the bay, and between my, uh, my home and yours, uh, and the bay is yours, and you decide to build a second story on your house, thereby blocking my view. 
Well, the question arises, did you have a right to do that? After all, you're now taking my view, and indeed, you're probably reducing the value of my home. Well, it turns out that you do have a right to build that second story because the view was never mine. I enjoyed it because it ran over your uh, property, but the thing is, you can sort this out if you repair to something like what is called the ad coelum rule, namely that you own from the nadir to the zenith, from the bottom of the, from the center of the earth to the heavens, in a straight line. Now, if I want that view and I want to make it mine, I can, of course, go to you and offer you a price to uh, restrain from adding that addition, pay you for it, and get an easement running with the property. That's the way to do it legitimately. Of course, I could also go to the local zoning board and have them zone you against uh, building a second story. That's the way it's done, say, in Berkeley, California, for the uphill people so they can enjoy the view running over the homes of the downhill people. Um, the idea is, though, that you get clear about cases like this by getting clear about what it is that you own free and clear. And in this case, you didn't own that view free and clear. You enjoyed it, to be sure. Nor did you own the value in your home, which was reduced by uh, building the second, your neighbor's building the second story. He's got a right to do with his, his home exactly what you've got a right to do with yours, even though there may be spillovers, as long as those spillovers don't take something that belongs free and clear. But now we come to the more difficult cases where we have to start drawing lines. And there are four classic areas there. You, they are nuisance, uh, uh, in, endangerment or risk, enforcement, and remedies. And I can just illustrate that this way. How much noise can you make before you uh, violate the right of your neighbor to quiet enjoyment? How much risk can you put him to? How much particulate matter can you waft into the air and so on and so forth? These areas of classic nuisance and risk all require line drawing, as does remedies. If you injure your neighbor, what is a life or a limb worth? Obviously, you as a tortfeasor will value it low, your neighbor will value it high. As between the two of you, it's not a difference of principle, it's simply a difference of degree and you'll need some third party to sort it out. So too with enforcement. If your rights are violated and you don't know who it was, what do you have a right to do? Can you stop everyone you run into? Can you pull out the thumbscrew or put the person on the rack to see if he's the one who stole your cow in the state of nature? Obviously not, but you can do some things. And what are the things that you can do? What I'm pointing to here is all the areas where the theory of rights runs out of principles rooted in reason and where you have to turn to values to complete the theory. And as such, you will have different people having different senses of those values. Reasonable people can have reasonable differences about those values. And so these are natural springboards, so to speak, from the state. But at this point in time, at least, now that we've got the outline of the theory of rights, I can reduce it to a few simple rules. And let me do so right now. They are three in number. Rule one, don't take what belongs to somebody else. That is the whole world of property. These rules are so simple, you can understand them on the playground. Rule two, keep your promises. That's the whole world of contracts and the associations that arise through contracts. And rule th three, if you've uh, violated one or two, give back what you've wrongly taken 
or wrongly withheld. That's the whole world of remedies. And there, in a nutshell, in three simple rules, is the common law as it pertains to the rights and obligations we have vis-a-vis each other. Now, there is a fourth rule, but it's optional. And I allude here to the Good Samaritan parable. It is to do some good as you work your way through life. And it is optional because you don't have to do that. You don't have to rescue the drowning child. If you're a decent human being, you will do so if you can do it at no extraordinary cost to yourself. And so you can say with perfect consistency, you have no right, you have no obligation to rescue the drowning child, but you ought to do so. And how can you do, say that without contradiction? It's because those two terms, obligation and ought, come from different domains of morality, as the Oxford jurisprudence HLA Hart has put it. The obligation, as I have used it just now, is rooted in the theory of rights. Ought is rooted in the theory of value about which we may have differences. And so this is the area, as I said, where the Good Samaritan issue comes up. And I focus on it because that is the example that is the welfare state writ small, just as the Good, uh, the welfare, uh, the good Samaritan uh, example is the uh, is the the other way around the the welfare state is the good Samaritan example writ large, and this is so so you've got these four basic rules three that are obligatory one which is optional which essentially characterize the world of morality and leave individuals free to pursue happiness as they think best but of course you've now got the problem of how to enforce these these uh, principles. And that was addressed by the classical theorists. You remember Hobbes spoke of life in the state of nature as being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Locke spoke of there being inconveniences in the state of nature. We may disagree about what our rights are. We may disagree about what rights we have to secure our rights. So it behooves us to come out of the state of nature and into the state of civil society to secure these rights and to provide for the few other things that are called public goods. The problem with that, however, is how do you do so legitimately? And there are some real problems in doing that as the anarchists have recognized, and they are absolutely right at the end of the day. Unfortunately, you can't live in that kind of world, or at least historically the attempts to do so have not proved very successful. And so you can see this by simply going to the Declaration again, where Jefferson continued that to secure these rights, which rights, the ones I've just outlined, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And so it's rooted in consent. And the reason it is social contract theory is because once you've consented, you cannot be heard to complain. And this will work perfectly well if you're dealing with unanimity. That is to say, each of us has a right to rule himself. If we give that right up to the king or to some other uh, entity, then we cannot be heard to complain. But rarely, if ever, do you get unanimity, especially on matters of this kind. And the classical theorists understood this, which is why they turned to a two-stage theory of, of consent, the social contract. We all agree originally, in the original position, unanimously to be bound thereafter by the majority or some other fraction of the whole. That will get you through, except 
The problem is, it will only pertain to those who were there in the original position. You have the problem of subsequent generations. None of us here, I dare say, was in the original position. Some of you may have come from abroad and taken an oath to abide or live by the Constitution. You would be covered by this, but most of us would not. And so the last resort of the social contract theorist is to the theory of tacit consent. You stayed, therefore you're bound. Well, that won't work either because it's tantamount to the majority, putting the minority to a choice between two of its entitlements. It's right to stay where it is, and it's right not to come under the will of the majority, precisely what the majority has to defend on pain of circularity. And so you're left with a startling conclusion when you work your way through this social contract thesis systematically, namely that there is an air of illegitimacy that surrounds government as such. It's a different entity than private associations, everything from the Boy Scouts to the Kiwanis Club to, the, uh, to General Motors to the Baptist Church, you name it. These are all voluntary private associations. When it comes to government, it is not only the institution that claims a monopoly on the use of force, but one that you do not enter voluntarily. And so when you recognize this and you realize the character of government, then you will have hit upon a fundamental point about political philosophy, namely that there is an air of illegitimacy around government as such, and therefore it behooves you to do as little as possible through government and as much as possible in the private sector where it can be done freely and in violation of the rights of no one rather than in violation of those rights who may not want that activity to be pursued through government and therefore are compelled to be associated with it. So that is the fundamental insight about the nature of government that should color every consideration thereafter. But it still is possible to refine that. And I'm going to give you three levels of legitimacy in descending or uh, a degree of legitimacy. The first great power of government is the police power. What, call, what Locke called the executive power in the state of nature that each of us has to secure his rights. That is the power that, the main power that we yield up to the government in the original position to exercise on our behalf. And with respect to that power, there is no problem of legitimacy except for those few people who don't want to come in out of the state of nature, the people who would rather provide for their own police operations, their own courts, and so on and so forth. Those people we force out of the state of nature and into our civil society. But the power itself, because each of us had it in the state of nature, is per se legitimate. And it entails not simply the power to enforce, but the power to uh, flesh out our rights, uh, not simply as I have just done now, but in various areas of positive law, for example, uh, speed limits, driving on the right side of the road and so forth, are not principles of natural law. Those are pure positive law uh, uh, laws. And so that is the kind of thing that, that under the police power, uh, one uh, authorizes government to undertake. The second great power, and one other thing I want to mention under the police power, is the power to provide public goods, 
narrowly understood as defined by economists as exhibiting non-rivalrous consumption and non-excludability. Public goods like law enforcement, national security, the provision of clean air, and the like. As distinguished from private goods, everything from food, clothing, shelter, education, health care, and so forth, those are all private goods, no business providing those through government. Those people can provide for themselves in the marketplace, unlike these other public goods narrowly defined as I just did, which are provided through the police power. Now, the second great power is the power of eminent domain. It may be necessary from time to time for government <clears throat> to condemn property to avoid the monopoly holdout problem, especially in network industries like railroads, cable, and so on and so forth. There you've got a greater problem of legitimacy. Why? Because none of us in the state of nature would have the right to condemn his neighbor's property, even if he did put that subsequent use to a very worthy end, and even if he did provide his neighbor with just compensation. So how can you justify it when the government has that power? Well, it turns out the best you can do is say this, that it is justified because we gave it to government in the original position, the Fifth Amendment's taking clause, for example, and secondly, because it is what con economists call Pareto optimal. That is to say, at least one person is made better off by its exercise, no one is made worse off. The person made better off is the public, as is evidenced by its willingness to pay. The person not made worse off is the person from whom the property is taken, provided he receives just compensation, not the kind of compensation he re receives under current law, but that compensation that would leave him indifferent as to whether he gets the money or keeps the property. And so that's the best you can do by justifying eminent domain. The third great power of government is the redistributive power. And this takes two forms, material redistribution and regulatory redistribution. This power is utterly unjustified. It amounts to taking from A and giving to B. The, the material redistribution is done through the taxing power. The regulatory redistribution is done through the commerce power at the federal level. That is regulating in the sense of promote, pro, pro, um, denying rights to A for the benefit of B, prohibiting A from doing what he would otherwise have a right to do or requiring him to do what he would otherwise have a right not to do for the benefit of A. That is what's called regulatory redistribution. So now we have in descending order of uh, legitimacy three categories of government which you can think of when you look at whatever it is that government is doing today and see which category the government uh, power is falling into. Thus, for example, uh, environmental regulation would fall under category one, at least insofar as it's rational uh, regulation, because it's designed to protect uh, uh, A from uh, the kinds of environmental harms that might be caused by B, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> now, let's turn, we've got our theory before us, let's now turn to the Constitution itself, and we see right in the preamble that Madison put us in state of nature theory. We the people, for the purposes listed, do ordain and establish this Constitution. Notice that all power starts with the people. They give the government whatever powers they do give it. 
the rest they retain themselves. The government does not give the people its, their rights. They already have their rights. It's an exercise of those rights, in fact, that they bring government into being in the first place. So we, the people, for the purposes listed, do ordain and establish this constitution. Now, the problem that Madison had was how to create a constitution and a government that was strong enough to secure our rights and do the few other things we wanted it to do, yet not so extensive or powerful as to violate rights in the process. And he did that through the checks and balances we're all familiar with, the uh, division of powers between the federal and state governments, with most power left with the states, the separation of powers between the three branches, each branch defined functionally, the provision for a bicameral legislature, each chamber constituted differently, the provision for a unitary executive with the power of veto and the power of Congress to override the veto by a supermajority vote, the provision for an independent judiciary to check the political branches and later the states to make sure that their actions conform to the strictures set forth in the document, the provision for periodic elections designed mainly to fill the offices set forth in the document. But the main restraint on overweening government, and remember they had just fought a revolution to rid themselves of overweening government, took the name of the doctrine of enumerated powers. And I can state it no more simply than this. If you want to limit power, don't give it in the first place. You see that doctrine spelled out in the very first sentence of Article 1. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. By implication, not all power was herein granted. You look at Article 1, Section 8, and you will see the powers that were granted to Congress. There are only 18 powers there. And then you look at the Tenth Amendment, the last documentary evidence from the founding period, and you will see the, uh, the doctrine of enumerated powers spelled out expressly. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the Constitution establishes a government of delegated, enumerated, and thus limited powers. And then you look at the Ninth Amendment and you will see the uh, theory of the uh, Declaration spelled out right before you. The Ninth Amendment's history gives you an indication of what was going on there. During the ratification debates, it became clear that the Constitution would not be ratified unless a Bill of Rights were added. But there were objections to a Bill of Rights, two main objections, in fact. One, that it was unnecessary, and two, that it was dangerous to add a Bill of Rights. Wilson, Hamilton, and others said, it's unnecessary. Why declare that there's freedom of speech when there's no power given to violate the freedom of speech? In other words, they took that doctrine of enumerated power seriously as the main restraint on overweening government. It wasn't the Bill of Rights. That was, as Justice Scalia has rightly called it, an afterthought added two years later. We lived for two years without a Bill of Rights. Does that mean we had no rights vis-a-vis -vis the federal government? No. We had rights because where there is no power, by uh, the logical derivation, there is a right. And so it was uh, for that uh, reason first that um, they objected to a Bill of Rights. And second, they said it was dangerous. Why? Because you can't enumerate all of our rights. There are an infinite number of rights. 
But by ordinary principles of legal construction, once you fail to uh, enumerate all members of a category, the failure to do so will be read as meaning that only those that are enumerated are meant to be protected in contradistinction from those that are not enumerated. And so, to address that problem, they wrote the Ninth Amendment, which says, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Notice, retained by the people. You cannot retain what you don't first have to be retained. And so the Ninth Amendment makes it clear that we have rights both enumerated and unenumerated. Whereas the Tenth Amendment makes it clear that the federal government has only those powers that are enumerated in the document. And so the picture that emerges from the Constitution is the same one that emerged from the Declaration, namely that each of us is free to pursue happiness by his own lights as he works his way through life, to plan and live his life, provided he respects the equal rights of others to do the same, and government is there to secure those rights, enforce those obligations, and to do the few other things that we have authorized it to do. And we lived under that order for the next 150 years for the most part. It wasn't perfect to be sure. There was the cardinal sin of the Constitution, the oblique recognition of slavery. The framers wrestled mightily with that institution. They knew it was inconsistent with their founding principles. They made their Faustian bargain. They hoped the institution would wither away in time. They'd made their bargain in order to preserve unity. They hoped it would wither away. It didn't. It took a civil war to end slavery and the passage of the Civil War Amendments, which for the first time provided federal remedies against state violations of our rights. The Bill of Rights applied only against the federal government, not against state governments. That's why you could have establishment churches as late as 1836 in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. With the passage of the 14th Amendment, however, you could now go into court and bring an action against your own state that it was violating, that it was bridging the privileges or immunities of citizens, depriving people of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, or denying people the equal protection of the laws, the three great fonts of right under Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. And then we could, we could say, that the Constitution was completed in the sense that at last the grand principles of the Declaration were incorporated in the document. Through the decades, the last decades of the 19th century, we lived largely under that, not entirely, because the slaughterhouse cases of 1873 eviscerated the Privileges or Immunities Clause of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. After Reconstruction came to an end, Jim Crow arose, the separate but equal regime in the South. Eventually, however, what occurred was the great watershed that goes to the issue of the scope and size of government, and that is the Progressive Era. At the end of the 19th and through the early decades of the 20th centuries, we saw a fundamental shift in the climate of ideas. The progressives coming from the elite schools of the Northeast had a fundamentally different conception of government, whereas the framers saw government as a necessary evil, 
The, the progressive saw it as an engine of good, an instrument through which to solve all kinds of social and economic problems. They were social engineers. They were looking at Bismarck's social security scheme in Germany. They were looking at England where utilitarianism in ethics had replaced natural rights theory. The idea was that law, policy, judgment were to be justified not with reference to whether they protected our rights, but rather with reference to whether they provided the greatest good for the greatest number. That's utilitarianism. Notice how it lends itself peculiarly to law, not as adjudication through courts, but rather law as crafted by legislatures, policy. What shall we do as a people? Shall we have a retirement system through the government? Shall we have health care through the government? And so on and so forth. All of this is much, easily, much more easily justified only under a utilitarian consequentialist theory of legitimacy rather than a rights-based, what philosophers call deontological theory of legitimacy, which was being eclipsed by utilitarianism. And indeed, that worked hand in glove with homegrown democratic theory. As I said, this was all <clears throat> um, part of the progressive era, and it took place mostly in the realm of economic regulation, where the progressives sought to regulate all manner of industries and resulted in creating cartels in one industry after another in the name of uh, progress. But it wasn't just in the economic area that the progressives were active. We have a case, for example, in 1927 called Buck v. Bell, which was a challenge to a Virginia statute that authorized the sterilization of people thought to be of insufficient intelligence. A sweetheart suit got that case before the Supreme Court, and Oliver Wendell Holmes, the great progressive from Cambridge, wrote an opinion upholding the Virginia statute that ran no more than five paragraphs and ended with the ringing phrase, three generations of imbeciles are enough. There followed some 70,000 sterilizations in this country, all part of the modern eugenics movement, which was championed by such luminaries of the day as the president of Planned Parenthood, the president of Stanford University, and their ilk. It was to be, if I may paraphrase the DuPont ad from several years ago, better living through bigger government. And it took place not simply in the economic realm, but in personal realm as well as in this case of Buck v. Bell. They wanted to improve the human race. How are you going to do that if you allow those people to procreate? Things came to a head during the New Deal. That's when one program after another that Roosevelt got passed through Congress was found by the Supreme Court to be unconstitutional during his first term. After the landslide election of 1936, Roosevelt had had it with that, those nine old men on the court, and he introduced his infamous court packing scheme, <clears throat> his threat to pack the court with six new members of his own choosing. There was an uproar in the country over that. Not even Congress would go along with it. <clears throat> Nevertheless, the court got the message. There was the switch in time that saved nine. And it began rewriting the Constitution without benefit of constitutional amendment. It did it in three main steps. It eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers, the very centerpiece of the Constitution in a pair of cases in 1937. In 38, it bifurcated the Bill of Rights and gave us a bifurcated theory of judicial review. And in 1943, 
It jettisoned the non-delegation doctrine, which gave us the modern executive state that we know and love so well today. Let me take those just a bit slowly, more slowly. <clears throat> in 37, the court, in a pair of cases, as I said, eviscerated the doctrine of enumerated powers. With respect to the so-called general welfare clause, which is the first of Congress's power, the power to tax and spend for the general welfare of the United States. The court, in a case called Butler in 1936, revisited a famous debate between Hamilton on one side and Madison Jefferson and everybody else on the other side. Hamilton stood for the idea that Congress had an independent power to tax and spend for the general welfare. That couldn't possibly be right, said Madison, Jefferson, and the others, because if that were the case, then any time Congress wanted to do something that was not authorized to it, because no power had been given to it with which to do it, it could say simply that it was taxing and spending for the general welfare and make an end run around the doctrine of enumerated powers. Indeed, they added, what was the point of having enumerated Congress's other powers, since it could do anything it wanted under this sole power, could have stopped right there. Well, Madison, Jefferson, and company were absolutely right. Nevertheless, in the Butler decision in 36, the court came down on Hamilton's side, in dicta. That's not the holding of the case, that's peripheral language. A year later, however, in Halvering v. Davis, the Social Security case, the court elevated the dicta to the holding of the case. Thus, the floodgates were opened to the modern redistributive state Congress was now free to tax and spend for the general welfare, not even paying heed to the following words of the United States. That means they could take from A and give to B as they proceeded to do. The Commerce Clause was the second of the 1937 sources of government expansion. The Commerce Clause was written in order to ensure free commerce among the states in light of what was happening under the Articles of Confederation, where states were erecting tariffs and other protectionist measures for the benefit of local merchants and manufacturers to protect them from competition from out-of-state merchants and manufacturers, a standard public choice economics dynamic. And it was leading to the free flow of goods and services among the states, the breakdown of the free flow of goods and services. So in order to address that problem, the framers gave Congress the power to regulate or make regular commerce among the states. Think of how the word regulation was understood in 18th century cosmology, where gravity regulates the motions of the planets. The idea was to ensure free national trade, as against state interference with that. That was the main idea plus the power to do a few other things that would, but would ensure free trade. Well, in the Jones and Laughlin case, NLRB v. Jones and Laughlin, the court ruled that Congress had a power to regulate anything that affected interstate commerce. Of course, there's nothing that does not at some level affect interstate commerce. And so now the floodgates were open to the modern regulatory and redistributive state. But of course, you could still invoke your rights against these two now vastly expanded powers. And so to address that little problem, in 1938, in a case called Caroline Products, in famous footnote four, the court distinguished two kinds of rights and two levels of judicial review. 
If a law implicated fundamental rights, like speech, voting, notice the democratization of the Constitution, the court would apply what is called strict scrutiny. The government would have to have a compelling interest. The means it employed would have to be narrowly tailored. In most cases, the statute would be found unconstitutional. By contrast, if a, if a law implicated non-fundamental rights, like, speed, like um, property, contract, the rights we exercise in ordinary commercial relations, why then the court would apply the so-called rational basis test. If the legislature had some reason, some conceivable reason, that was good enough for passing the statute. And so the court essentially looked the other way, and the floodgates were now finally open. And what poured through was a vast sea of legislation, federal, state, and local. At the federal level, the Congress was unable to handle it all. And so what it did was start writing broad statutes and delegating to the executive branch agencies that it was creating the actual lawmaking power, the power to write regulations and rules under these broad statutes. Contrary to the very first sentence of the Constitution, which reads, again, all legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. That's the non-delegation doctrine. Congress was delegating it to the, court, to the um, agencies, and the court in the NBC decision of 1943 upheld that delegation. And so we have now the modern executive state, where much, if not all, of the law under which we live <clears throat> is being written. Look what's going on today over at HHS, at the IRS, at Treasury and elsewhere with respect to Obamacare. That's where all the lawmaking is taking place. Congress issued its broad instructions, and now the rest belongs to the gnomes of HHS and so forth. Well, now, this is where we stood after the, um, the New Deal revolution. But in the 1950s and 60s, we started to see the Warren and Burger courts, which had been restrained, passive even, after the New Deal revolution, start to become more active. Sometimes activism that was long overdue, as in Brown v. Board of, Board of Education, ending separate but equal in public schools, but in other areas as well, including some areas of the criminal law. At the same time, the court was finding rights that were not to be found even among our unenumerated rights, and doing so sufficiently that you had a conservative backlash. But the conservatives did not go back to the root of the problem, the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers. They made their peace with that, thinking it a lost cause, and instead focused upon the rights activism of the Warren and Berger courts, and called upon the court to secure only those rights that were fairly expressly in the Constitution, and not unenumerated rights, thus ignoring the Ninth Amendment and the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. So you had two schools of thought. You had both the liberals and the Democrats telling us what the court should do, both of them wrong. Both of them made their peace with the demise of the doctrine of enumerated powers. The only difference between them was on the rights side, not the powers side. 
The conservatives urged the court to secure only the rights that were fairly expressly there. The liberals urged the court to ignore rights that were there, like property and contract, and to find rights that were nowhere there, even among our unenumerated rights. That opened the door for a third school of thought, which I'm proud to say I was in the forefront of back when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. Bernie Segan out at the University of San Diego and I were among the first. Richard Epstein, just across the midway at the law school, a little later, Randy Barnett, and others joined over the years, calling for a third way between these two schools, calling for reviving the doctrine of enumerated powers on the one hand, and protecting rights both enumerated and unenumerated on the other hand, which would require, of course, that the court have a grasp of the theory of rights that stands behind the Constitution, which is why I spent so much time in the beginning of these remarks on that subject. Well, I'm happy to say that over the years, we have at least changed the terms of the debate. When I joined, when I left the Reagan administration after eight years, and joined the Cato Institute in late 1988 to set up the Center for Constitutional Studies, the conservatives dominated the debate on the right. People like Robert Bork, Antonin Scalia, and others urging judicial restraint, whereas Brennan and others were practicing judicial activism. And I and others by that time were saying, neither is right. What we want is a judiciary that is engaged in a principled way in securing the provisions of the Constitution, both limiting the powers to those that are enumerated and protecting rights both enumerated and unenumerated. I'm pleased to say that in 1995, for the first time in 58 years, the court, in a case called Lopez, found that Congress had exceeded its powers under the uh, doctrine of enumerated powers under the Commerce Clause. That was a case that involved a challenge to the Gun-Free School Zones Act that Congress has had passed in 1900. When I saw that case coming up, I asked Glenn Harlan Reynolds to write a paper that we would send to the Supreme Court. He did. I put a title on it. I beefed it up a little bit, put a title on it called Kids, Guns, and the Commerce Clause, is the court ready for constitutional government, thinking that title might catch their attention? It did, I would I like to say, I like to believe, and they found for the first time that the Congress had exceeded its powers under the Commerce Clause. The Morrison case in 2000 was another of this kind. Even the Obamacare case that came down the last term had a restraint on the scope of the commerce power. So we're making headway there, but just at the edges. On the right side of things, we're making some more headway. There's a whole series of cases that have secured unenumerated rights, going way back to 1905, Lochner v. New York, right up to Lawrence v. Texas in 2003. These are cases whereby people are bringing rights that are not enumerated among the Bill of Rights, but the court is finding for them but it's a very uneven jurisprudence. And so to wrap this up and to take a few of your questions, let me put it this way. <clears throat> it is a long slog because we are well down the road and it will not fall to the court alone to restore the Constitution that the framers gave us as 
completed through the Civil War amendments. It will fall ultimately to the Congress. The court could not tomorrow end Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, even if they wanted to. Too many people are too dependent upon it. We have to work our way out of that slowly, just as we worked our way into it. But in order to do that, we've got to keep our eye on the ball, and that's what we're doing here at Cato, is setting forth the broad and clear picture of what the Constitution is all about so it can encourage the court to keep its eye on the ball. And the results from the last term, 15 out of 18, suggest that we are beginning to make some headway there. Thank you. I take your questions. Hi, my name's Glenn Goodhand. I'm a dentist right now in South Dakota. I was really shocked when Justice Kennedy um, agreed with Obamacare. Clearly, according to the Tenth Amendment, of course, the government's taken a lot of powers, but I was shocked that he went with that decision. Now, I'm not an attorney, so I don't understand the details of it, but still, he usually votes with Justice Scalia, and that seemed to be a complete reversal of his principles. And it was on such an important issue I, I believe that medical care is 20% of the economy, and to allow the government to take that over just seems completely, completely at, at odds with what the Constitution... But, but Kennedy didn't go... It, it was Roberts. I'm sorry, Judge Roberts, I'm sorry. Wrong, yeah. wrong one, yeah. So I didn't understand that. Maybe you can explain his theory there. Yeah, I made the best case for it that I think could be made in the forward to the current... Supreme, Cato Supreme Court review, and it's this. He invoked the uh, presumption of constitutionality. That is a presumption whereby you start by assuming that the Congress has the power to do what it's done. Then the burden shifts to the other side to show not. Well, what the Congress said it did was enact the individual mandate under the Commerce Clause. But there is also a line of cases that say that the court is not so much concerned with the question what Congress said it did, it's rather concerned with what it actually did. In other words, is what it did constitutional if not under the power that it claimed, some other power? That's the way he went about it. And he invoked the taxing power as the ground for it, and there he was on better ground, but for the fact that the tax at issue, if it indeed is a tax, because it's administered through the IRS, if you don't get your insurance, you are supposed to be paying a tax to the IRS. It's a tax that is not anywhere constitutionally cognizable. In other words, it isn't a direct tax, it isn't an excise, it isn't, um, um, certain, certain, uh, it isn't an income tax, not a tax on income, it's not a tax on property. What kind of a tax is it? And so that's where it seems to me that he went wrong, right there. And so he was <clears throat> trying to, as is his want, be as reserved as possible and as modest as possible. He is one of those who takes judicial restraint more seriously that, at least in my judgment, it should be taken. The court is there to be engaged in 
protecting rights and limiting powers uh, and in being less deferential than it is all too often. Uh, yes, I'll go back side to side, okay? Yes. Going back to the natural rights theory, what is your view on initial acquisitions? So uh, in the state, initial acquisitions oh, yes. uh, in the state of nature, how might a previously mm. unowned natural resource come to be legitimately held? Yeah, well, I assume you're alluding to Locke's theory of acquisition. Right, and he starts by saying the 23rd Psalm says that in the beginning, all the world was owned in common. And therefore, how do we get private property out of that? <clears throat> the problem he's got from the outset is with his premise. Uh, again, I invoke a rule of parsimony. You want to start with the simplest premise. He's starting with the premise that says, in the world, all in the beginning, all the world was owned in common. Well, what he's trying to show is ownership. Ownership is a complex notion. There was a simpler premise available to him, because starting with his premise, the problem is, well, if all the world is owned in common, how do you get private property out of it? Presumably by consent, but that means you're going to have to the consent of all the world past, current, and future generations, right? And you'll never get it. So what you've got to do is look, maybe he's got the wrong premise. A simpler and more um, rational premise would be, in the beginning, nothing was owned, okay? Now we have the way that things get owned. They get owned by, as he said, mixing your labor with it. I mean, that's the best theory we can come up with. When you pick the apple from the unowned tree, when you catch the fish from the ocean, at least you've done something, right? So someone comes along and says, that's my fish, that's my apple. And you say, well, what have you done to make it yours? Well, nothing. Well, at least I've done something. So in other words, you may not have a slam dunk argument, but you've got a better argument than the other guy. And, and that's uh, good enough. You but know? Do you believe on the enough and as good proviso limiting labor? What's that? Uh, do you believe in Locke's enough and as good proviso Limiting labor mixing acquisitions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's mixing your labor with it that uh, that makes it yours. Uh, and as I say, that you know, whether you're talking about staking out black acre or white acre, or you're talking about catching the fish from the ocean and so forth, that's that's the way one wants to go about it. And essentially, it's the old uh, common law way. Uh, possession is the root of title. Was the old common law rule? Okay. My name is Alora Haston. I'm a student at the George Washington University. And um, you were talking about the progressive era, and you mentioned a fundamental shift in the climate of ideas. I was wondering what kinds of things you think caused that dramatic shift in ideas of what the government could and couldn't do. Well, it was an unholy alliance between progressivism and populism. Sound familiar? Current situation? <clears throat> the um, progressives promising the world and populists falling for it. Okay. There's a man who goes around giving speeches of that kind, and you may, you, you, he's got a funny name. Um, the, um, the, uh, 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 th that, industrialization and urbanization were conditions that contributed to it. Life was getting more complicated, but when life gets more complicated, that's when you want to have simpler rules. Richard Epstein wrote a book that we published, and I edited. Boy, it's a job editing Richard Epstein. I tell you, you think he speaks in perfect paragraphs? You ought to try editing him. Um, the, um, uh, called Simple Rules for a Complex World. And it was a, it's a great book, and it shows how it is when things get more complex along Hayekian principles. You want to go to the lowest level possible and have simple rules to sort the matters out. And so that's, uh, th there were lots of factors, but uh, that together with the, the, the mindset that came out of Europe. Don't forget, 
Europe is where so much of the Marx uh, during the, uh, during the um, <clears throat> middle of the 19th century uh, and the German uh, approach to so much of this. Uh, it was, and the, the, um, <clears throat> the uh, Bloomsbury set in England. I mean, th these were all people who believed in government. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Sarah Harvard. I go to American University. First, I'd like to thank you so much for speaking here today. Um, in the peak of the NSA and Edward Snowden scandal, you co-authored a article in the Chicago Tribune with Richard Epstein, no. um, kind of defending President Obama, saying he was under harsh attack over the NSA surveillance scandal, despite the fact that millions of Americans were on, involuntarily subjected to unwarranted um, searches and internet surveillance, as well as um, the collection of phone records. Uh, my question is, um, you also mentioned that there's a trade-off in the Fourth Amendment that um, the Constitution allows for searches, but not unreasonable searches. So as someone who's an advocate for constitutional law, um, and, and I guess like advocate for the Constitution itself, what, who decides what is reasonable or unreasonable in that situation? The Supreme Court does. You said there were unreasonable searches. They weren't even searches. Surveillance is not a search. That's the case of Marilyn v. Uh, excuse me, uh, Marilyn v. Smith, 1979. The um, what we have here is metadata that is being uh, gathered, run through complex algorithms in huge computers to see if any connection can be made between. Uh, between the patterns that come out and known terrorists. That's when you then go in to get a warrant to do a search. So surveillance, the surveillance is not a search. If it were, then the cop on the beat would be unconstitutional because what he is doing is surveilling. When he gets enough evidence, he may go into a court to get a warrant, absent exigent circumstances, to do a search. So this you don't really mind the collection of phone records of millions of Americans as well, surveillance is no, this is the, This is equivalent to the, what's called the pen register in a criminal. Right, but doesn't mean it's right. It's like an invasion of privacy, though, wouldn't you agree? No, no. I mean, after all, the, 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 there's where the unreasonable comes in. The court has said it's not unreasonable to do the metadata any more than it is to do a pen register. All right, well, I'll, I'll agree to disagree. Because the court doesn't, I mean, the, the Fourth Amendment doesn't prohibit searches. It prohibits only unreasonable searches. And there's lots, and these are where all the close calls come in. The, uh, the cop who's putting the radar gun out is, is if you want to say, surveilling everybody, but he's looking only for that one person who's speeding. And so, and the, and the same thing, the cop on the beat. That wouldn't be really fair to, you know, spy on millions of Americans for a It's not spying. I mean, see, you know, this is the kind of inflammatory language that, that beclouds the facts of the matter. I served in the administration. I had top secret, uh, top secret uh, compartmented security clearances. If you want to know what changed Obama's mind, it's those morning briefings. I went into the little rooms, lead walls, where they brought you the file, and watched you as you read. This was in the days of paper files. Well, you read those. All right, well, last you read question. those, and it blows your mind. Well, last question. Do you think that Edward Snowden should be subject to trial over? I can't um, hear you say that again. Do you think that Edward Snowden should be subject to trial? Do I think what? Edward Snowden, should he be oh, subject to trial? Yes, he's a th he's 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 a criminal. He took an oath to uh, to uh, protect these uh, these sources and documents. Ariel. That's what that's what the oath is all about. All right. Thank I'm you. not an anarchist by a long shot. All right. Thank you. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is uh, John Zhao, and I'm a student at Duke University. 
Uh, so Senator Ted Cruz, when he was the Solicitor General for Texas, he uh, famously and successfully argued the Medellin case before the Supreme Court, right, uh, which rejected uh, the notion that uh, we could be bound by an interna- the you know rulings of an international regulatory court. Uh, should Americans uh, be you know ever more vigilant and worry of being subjected not only to injustices by our own government, but by injustices or impositions uh, imposed upon us by not only our government, but in an international body? Yes, this brings up an issue which is very important. I'm glad you raised it. And that is that this growing move toward international law, which you see in the elite law schools, um, Harold Coe was dean at Yale before he became the general counsel at uh, state in, in this administration, was in the forefront of this body of law. The idea is to supersede national sovereignty in the name of some global sovereign so that we are subject to the scrutiny and legal uh, sanctions of such human rights luminaries as Cuba, uh, uh, the um, um, Zimbabwe, and uh, other such uh, countries. And you look at the UN Human uh, Rights uh, uh, Council, uh, and you see how this plays out. Again, I was in the Reagan administration. I was the advisor to the head of the uh, delegation, the U.S. delegation to the 1987 Human Rights Commission meetings in Geneva. I saw how that worked up close. It's not a party to which you want to be a party. It is, it is simply a zoo, a political zoo, and uh, if we go down this road, we'll have no one to blame but ourselves. So thank you for that question. Thank you. Could you say more about the idea of rights as something that precedes establishment of a government or constitution? I find I don't have any intuition for what right might mean in that circumstance. And von Mises said in one of the pre-readings, uh, natural rights are, or natural law is quite arbitrary and such discussions are not open to, uh, to settlement. And probably related to that is you talk about the unenumerated rights in the Ninth Amendment. Um, what sort of practical rule can be used to determine if something is an unenumerated right as opposed to a right that somebody just made up and that wasn't there before? Okay, you're raising one of the principal objections to uh, the natural rights approach to the Constitution and one of the principal arguments in favor of legal positivism because at least that way we know what it is. Well, of course, we don't really because we also have positive laws that have to be interpreted too and lots of people reach different conclusions on that. Um, You asked, first of all, what was a right? A right is a justified claim to stand in a relationship with some other person or person such that that other person or person has a... uh, correlative obligation to do or not do some particular thing. There's an analytical definition of a right, okay? Now, if you're going to ask me what the epistemological foundations of rights theory are, that's a lecture for another day. I wrote a doctoral dissertation on that subject, and it's a long and complex subject, and I'm not going to do it in the little bit of time we have here. Didn't you publish your doctoral dissertation for dummies somewhere that I uh, No, no, I, you can go to the University of Michigan is where all of those are found, and you can find it there. Uh, but the idea is that But I will say just this much. You're right. There have been criticisms of the idea that, well, we disagree about what our rights are. But for me, the striking thing is 
how often we do agree about what rights we have and how much the framers agreed about that as well as the old common law judges. They got it pretty right, pretty much right, over some 500 years because they were working with fundamental principles like property and contract. And when you start getting into these newfangled right claims like rights to welfare, rights to housing, uh, and uh, pay with dignity, uh, periodic holidays with pay, that's Article 24 of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Well, then you're talking about rights that entail obligations on other people to provide you with goods. That interferes with their freedom. So the basic classical liberal theory of rights is one in which each of us has a right uh, to enjoy what is his provided he doesn't violate the rights of others, and the violation is defined by taking something that belongs free and clear to another, and that's the key to figuring out what your rights are. Is what I'm claiming going to result in taking something that belongs free and clear to another? So if I had a right to that view, I would take your right to build your second story on your house, and that I have no right to. So you see, you can think through these things, and it's amazing what results thought will yield. If only people would use it. <laughs> Hello. Oh, really? Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, my name is Frederick. I'm a soon-to-be law student at Uppsala University in Sweden. Uh, we have quite a different constitution, but that's another story. Now, uh, I uh, recently read a book about uh, former Chief Justice uh, William Rehnquist. Yes. Uh, and in that book, his personal ideology was described as some sort of rugged libertarianism. And when I read some of his uh, opinions, I found that he, his ideology seemed to at times not be at all compatible with libertarianism. So I was, I was just wondering, considering that you were a part of the administration that nominated him to be chief justice, uh, what's your take on his personal ideology and his influence on the current Supreme Court? Yeah, well, like so many lawyers, um, Chief Justice uh, Rehnquist was a combination of many forces and there was a lot of ad hoc to his um, approach to law. Uh, he was essentially a legal positivist um, and his, he saw his job, as most judges do, as enforcing the law, not deciding policy. He was a great friend of property rights, I'll say that, and, and federalism, too. But he was not inconsistent. And so many lawyers are not inconsistent because they don't have a theory of the matter. You get in law school, and if you maybe have had a course or two in undergraduate in political science, it, it tends not to address fundamental issues. And then you learn the, the black letter law, and then you go out and practice law, and you become a judge one day. And uh, then, you find, then you're deciding cases as they come before you. And the cases that come before you today are often, far often, more often statutory cases rather than common law cases. And the statutory cases are just a function of what the legislature may have done on a given day. And what you have to do is interpret the language of the statute. And it's not a constitutional issue anymore. It's a statutory issue. And so when you find judges like Rehnquist, you find that they, it's hard to put their whole uh, Weltanschung together because it is a, um, uh, it's a mixed bag. Uh, he was, on the whole, a lot better than many of the judges on the left. 
And so, you know, I'm grateful for that. He came over and had lunch with us uh, one day, and, uh, you know, we tried to move him in the right direction, and maybe we did it here and there, but uh, uh, he's the one, for example, who talked about property rights having become like poor relations in the Bill of Rights. Now, that's important because it's something that I use whenever I talk about property rights as the springboard for it because that's exactly what we're left with, second-class rights, property rights, and what we need to do is move them up to the top where they are first-class rights, everybody's equal rights to speech, religion, and so on and so forth. Thank you. Thank you.